Welcome everyone to episode 10 of the Texosity series presented by the 210 Culture podcast and pop culture radio on YouTube. My name is Donna and I am your host. Wow, 10 full episodes of the Texosity series that I have recorded. Of course, not including the the Reddit chats back in October, which October is coming up again. So hopefully I will have some Reddit chats for you guys in October. So get ready for that. Wow, that's some shit. So on today's episode, we will be talking about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, aka the Phantom Killer of 1946. Texarkana is split between Texas and Arkansas, and during the year of 1946, Texarkana was experiencing a series of unsolved murders and crimes by an unidentified serial killer. It is said the killer attacked a total of eight people within a 10-week span, five of whom were killed. These killings took place between February 1946 till May 1946. There was a specific spot that the phantom killer liked to attack and that was quote unquote lover's lane a secluded road just off richmond road so i will be talking about the different attacks that happened at quote unquote lover's lane and the potential suspects that were behind these killings during the spring of 1946. so let's start with the first case which happened February 22nd, 1946. Young couple Jimmy Hollis, 24, and his girlfriend Mary Jean Larry, 19, were parked in Lover's Lane after spending the evening at the movies. They decided to stop at Lover's Lane to see if Jimmy could use a Jimmy on his Richie on Mary Jean. (laughs) Too many fucking names. You know what the fuck I'm talking about. You know. If you know, you know. It is said that a man wearing a white cloth mask came out of the dark what looked like to be a pillowcase with eye holes and was at their car window shining a light into their eyes. Man, (laughs) that sounds like some movie type shit, man. (laughs) Jimmy, thinking it was a prank, would tell the man, wrong person, to which the man proceeded to tell him, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. The man orders him to step out of the car and the man also orders Jimmy to, quote, take off his goddamn britches, unquote. Take them off, bitch. Take them off. After doing so, Jimmy was struck twice in the head with a pistol. Mary Jean did tell investigators later that the noise was so loud she thought Jimmy had been shot when it was the sound of his skull fracturing. Mary Jean then shows a man her wallet to prove that they were some broke-ass motherfuckers, (laughs) but the man was not having it. He struck her with a blunt object and she fell down. The man tells her to get up and tells her to run, which Mary Jean does and ends up running towards a ditch. The man tells her she's a dumb bitch and needs to run a different direction up the road. I mean, JK, (laughs) he didn't tell her that, but I'm sure he was thinking it. The man eventually catches up to her after running a different direction and seeing an abandoned car up the road. The man asks her why she is running. Why are you running? Why? Why are you running? And she says, because you told me so. Like, bitch, you done told me to run and that's what I did, ho. The man proceeds to call her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with a barrel of his gun. Mary Jean flees again after the assault on foot, running about half a mile until eventually finding a nearby home. She tries to call out to cars passing by the home 
which she found but kept being ignored. Mary Jean eventually woke up the residents of the home and they called the police. Meanwhile, poor Jimmy had finally regained his consciousness and managed to flag down a passerby on Richmond Road. Way faster than Mary Jean, it seems. The passerby left Jimmy at his car and Jimmy drove to a nearby funeral home where he was able to call the police from. Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley and three other officers were at the scene of the attack, but the man had already left. The only thing they found was Jimmy's pants about 100 yards away from the parked car. Mary Jean was hospitalized overnight with a minor head wound, while Jimmy was hospitalized for several days to recover from the multiple skull fractures he had. While in questioning, both Jimmy and Mary Jean would give conflicting reports to law enforcement as to what the man that attacked them looked like. Mary Jean claimed the man was wearing a white bag over his head with eye holes and a mouth, and she could see under the mask that he was African American. Jimmy claimed that the man was white, around 30 years old, but could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded by the flashlight. What both agreed on was that he was a tall motherfucker, about six feet tall. Law enforcement didn't buy into their claims as they challenged Mary Jean's account. They believed that both Jimmy and Mary Jean knew who the attacker was, but were covering for him. It is said that the sexual assault of Mary Jean was not initially reported in the media, for police thought it was too vulgar to mention. They thought leaving that detail out would weed out false confessors. What a weird time back then, you know what I mean? It's so easy back then to fucking do some shit and not get caught because they weren't really technologically savvy at the time. I mean, it was 1946. It's fucking wild to me. After that, the next case that happened was March 24th, 1946. What happened was a motorist was passing by Lover's Lane when he noticed an Oldsmobile sedan with a couple inside. The motorist approached the vehicle thinking the couple were asleep in the car at first when he found Richard L. Griffin, 29, between the front seats on his knees while his head was resting on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. He then found Richard's girlfriend of six weeks, Pollyanne Moore, 17, sprawled face down in the back seat. Supposedly, there is evidence suggesting that Polly was killed on a blanket outside the car and then placed in the back seat. Richard was shot twice while still in the car and both had been shot once in the back of the head, and both were fully clothed. Near the car was blood on the ground, suggesting that both had been killed outside the car and then placed back inside. Blood was also covering the running board and flowed through the bottom of the car door. Since it was raining, there were no footprints that police could find, but a .32 caliber shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol wrapped in a blanket. Richard Lanyard Griffin was born August 31, 1916, and grew up in Linden, Texas, eventually enrolled in World War II. He was a member of the CBs, the U.S. Naval Construction Battalions. Richard was discharged in December of 1945 and returned to Texas where he would move in with his mother and worked as a carpenter and a painter where he would eventually meet Polly. Polly was born November 10, 1928, and grew up in Atlanta, Texas, and graduated high school at the age of 16. After graduation, she worked for Red River Arsenal as a checker. Polly lived with her cousin at the time, and that was when she began dating Richard. 
The couple had been dating for only six weeks when they were murdered. There were no reports indicating that Richard and Polly were examined by a pathologist, but there were sure rumors going around that sexual assault had also occurred with this double murder. Modern reports would refute this claim, and since Richard and Polly's murders happened on the Texas side of Texarkana, Bowie County would handle the investigation into the double murder. Arkansas City Police would also get involved as well as the FBI. By March 27, 1946, local police had interviewed a total of 50 to 60 witnesses, including Patreons and employees of Club Dallas, which was a club nearby the area. By March 30th, police would post a $500 reward in efforts to gain any new information on Richard and Polly's case that would lead to any arrests or convictions. Unfortunately, the reward produced over 100 false leads with fruitful clues or suspects. As citizens of the area were wrapping their heads around the past two murders that happened in the same area, three weeks later, the phantom would strike again. Can we talk about their age difference because he was 29 and she was 17. Let me just tell you how the fuck would a 29 year old have any interest or the same type of mentality or anything over a 17 year old? That just baffles me because that is too a fucking generational gap to, you know, be cool with each other like that. You know what I mean? But anyways, that's a different topic for another fucking day, I guess. The Phantom Killer would strike again April 13th, 1946. Betty Jo Booker, who was 15 at the time, was playing at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. She played the saxophone and her band would play every weekend at the VFW. That Sunday morning, April 14th, around 1.30 a.m., Paul Martin, 17, picked Betty Jo up from her performance and it would be the last time they were ever seen alive. Paul Martin's body would be found at 6.30 a.m. that morning by a Mr. and Ms. G. Weaver and their son. Paul's body was found lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood happens to be found down the other side of the road by a fence. And Paul had been shot four times, once through the nose, again through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time in the right hand, and the last shot through the back of the neck. Betty Jo's body was not found until 11.30 a.m. that same morning, and she was almost two miles away from Paul's body behind a tree. She was found by a different family who were part of the search party for her. She would be found lying on her back, fully clothed, with the right hand in her pocket of her overcoat. Betty Jo had been shot twice, once in the chest and once in the face. The killer used the same weapon as the first double murder that took place a few weeks back, a .32 automatic Colt pistol. Paul's 1946 Ford Club Coupe was found about three miles away from Betty Jo's body and close to two miles away from Paul's body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in the ignition. Police were unsure of who was shot first, but something was certain. They both put up a struggle. Investigators also came to the conclusion that Betty Jo was sexually assaulted, nearly identical to the last double murder. While interviewing friends and family of the victims, Paul's friend, Tom Albatron, said that there hadn't been any arguments between the victims and that Paul didn't have any enemies. Bitch, that's what he thought. That's what he fucking thought. 
Betty Jo's saxophone was not near her when her body was found and was eventually found six months later in October, still in its case, underbrush near where Betty Jo's body had been found. This detail led investigators to believe that the killer might have stolen her saxophone. Betty Jo would go everywhere with her instrument as she was very into her music. Betty Jo's saxophone was stolen and ultimately became the victims of a robbery gone wrong. So Betty Jo was born June 5th, 1930 and was an only child. Her father died early in her life. Betty attended Fairview Kindergarten where she had become friends with Paul Martin. Paul Martin was born May 8, 1929 and was the youngest of four sons. Betty and Paul remained friends throughout her life even with Paul being sent away to the Gulf Coast Military Academy for a year before returning and attending high school in Kilgore, Texas. The funerals of both Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker took place on April 16, 1946. Students were excused from school to allow them to grieve for their classmates and attend the services. Paul's services took place at 10 a.m. and Betty Jo's service took place at 2 p.m. the same day. So, check this out. 11 days after the murder, on April 25th, 1946, a man suddenly became a suspect in Corpus Christi, Texas, when he tried to sell a saxophone to a music store. According to the employees, he was nervous, and that's when a manager was brought in to speak with him. Excuse me, sir. I'm fucking busy. Don't be over here with your ribbing up that fucking fryer. I mean, engine up outside my fucking window. The beauties of living on the south side, gang gang. When the manager confronted the man and asked about the instrument, the man fled the scene and police were contacted. The man was arrested two days later on April 27, 1946, and during that span had purchased a .45 revolver from a pawn shop. When police looked through his room, they realized he didn't possess the saxophone anymore, but did have a bag of bloody clothes, which he had claimed he got into a bar fight a few days ago. The man was brought into questioning, where he would be cleared as a suspect weeks later. Police would question him numerous times, but eventually stated he wasn't their guy. Plus, he would later be cleared when they found the saxophone by the underbrush. At this point in time, the reward for the first double murder grew from $500 to $1,700, which today is the equivalent of $25,000. 25 fucking Gs. 1946, $1,700 for a reward to find out any information. 25 fucking G's, what the fuck? Such an inflation, such an inflation, and it's not even a hundred years. Leads kept coming in, but most of them were determined to be fake. A local taxi driver became a suspect when police spotted his car near one of the murder scenes, but the driver was cleared by investigators. Small town rumors started spreading, and one of those rumors was about a local minister, who many of the residents claimed had turned his own son as a suspect. Investigators later deemed that information to be false. The citizens of the town were frightened. Everyone was talking about who the killer could possibly be and were just waiting to see who they would murder next. The same day of Betty Jo and Paul's funeral services, the press released articles of the murders calling the murderer the Phantom Killer, which stuck with all the residents. There's something I saw 
I think it was on Facebook that says, why are we giving these serial killers like badass names like the Phantom Killer or the Night Stalker or, you know, some other shit. And it's just like, why don't we call them like small BB mans or some shit? And I'm like, you know what? That's a good idea. Like, why the fuck? You know, why the fuck we glorifying these motherfuckers? But obviously, you know, <laughs> I'm here doing a podcast about serial killers. <laughs> the next crime that happened was on May 3rd, 1946. The final crimes. This was it. It's the finale, the final crimes of the Phantom Killer. On May 3rd, 1946, Vigil Starks, 37, was listening to his weekly radio show in his home with his wife, Katie Starks, 36. Katie Starks was upstairs, so he was listening to it by himself. Two shots. Shots, 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 shots. Two shots were heard and fired onto the back of Vigil's head, and apparently the shots came through a closed window. Katie, at the time, was upstairs. She said she heard, quote, what sounded like the breaking of glass, unquote, and thought Vigil had broken something. He's like, this dumb motherfucker, what the fuck did he break now? So she headed downstairs to find Vigil standing up with blood rushing down his body. He suddenly slumped back into his chair and died. Katie ran back inside to call the police, but as she was reaching for the phone, Two more gunshots were heard, and she was shot twice in the face from the same window. The same motherfucking window. To the window, to the wall, to the wall, to the sweat dropped down her balls. So one bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear, while the other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. That might have been some shit she felt, dude. Like, fuck. I don't know how I would have felt. I would have just fucking like, this is it. Just dropped dead and died. I, you know, I wouldn't even have bothered to struggle with anything else. I'm like, look, I'm fucking dying. Like, my face is all fucked up. I'm just gonna lie here and just fucking die. Just fuck the shit. I'm not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I'm not fucking doing this. But she sure fucking did. Katie, struggling to keep alive, managed to pull herself up and grab a pistol that the couple kept in the living room. As blood was streaming down her face, she heard the killer enter the home. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. Katie knew the killer was coming after her, so she got up and ran for her life, leaving a trail of blood with teeth. The killer was like, oh shit, it's gonna be easier where the fuck to find her. <laughs> She eventually made it to the neighbor's house, who then called the police. Her neighbor, A.B. Prater, shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor. He was like, what in tarnation? Boom. All right, come on, bitch. Let's go. So Prater called Taylor to bring his car so that they could drive Katie to Michael Hospital, now Miller County Health Unit. Katie gave Taylor one of her teeth with a gold filling. You can see that she was semi-conscious and slumping forward on the front seat. But miraculously, Katie survives. She survives. She was like, I'm not dying here. Me and my gold tooth are going to be good. <laughs> the next morning, Saturday, May 4th, printed on the front page of the newspaper read, Murder rocks city again. A farmer slain, wife wounded. Four days after the incident, Sheriff Davis talked with Katie at the hospital. There was a rumor circulating that Vigil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared of being killed, but Katie discounted the rumor as being true. Immediately following the report of the attack, blockades were set up several miles northeast and southwest on Highway 67 East. 
Sheriff Davis called in officers from the entire area to help with the investigation. Investigators would find a trail of blood with scattered teeth. Of course, you know, so teeth. She didn't care about any other teeth, but she's like, save my gold tooth, bitch. That's mine. On the dining room table were Katie's supplies for making a dress. And after the quote unquote virtual river of blood, said a police officer, quote, it is beyond me why she did not bleed to death, unquote. Same. I would have just been like, I'm done. Bye. See you later. This isn't happening. (laughs) There were only two bullet holes in the window, leading officers to believe that an automatic rifle was used, even declaring that after the killer shot Vigil, he waited patiently outside the window to shoot Katie. Ain't that wild? That's some fucking shit. It looks like three clues were found at the crime scene. One was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that Vigil was shot from. The last clue was bloody footprints around the house, shoe prints on the kitchen floor, and smudged fingerprints in other places. The police were certain that Katie and Vigil were victims of the phantom killer. Despite that a different gun was used, 22 caliber shells were found at the scene, and the operation itself was different from previous killings. One wild theory for a motive amongst the majority of the officers was that of quote-unquote sex mania. Fuck WrestleMania. Sex mania, here we come, bitch. Because large amounts of money found in the home were not taken, nor was Katie's purse, which was lying on the bed containing money and jewels. Because of this theory, the front page paper on Sunday, May 5th, had a different title from Saturday, Sex Mania Hunted and Murders. Man, y'all real quick, real quick to fucking change the story like nothing. Fuck y'all. Okay, kitty cats, kitty cats, meow. Remember the flashlight they found at the crime scene? Well, they sent it to Washington, D.C. for further inspection of fingerprints. And days later, when the results came in, the flashlight contained no fingerprints. None. Nada. Whatsoever. Zip. Nothing. So on May 11th, a teletype machine arrived from Austin, Texas in the afternoon and was installed in the Bowie County Sheriff's Office. It was in operation later that night. One of the officers explained that the machine would aid in the investigation by connecting them with other law enforcement offices in Texas. You know, before the internet was a thing, before any technological shit was there. Uh, Sheriffs Presley and Davis both suggested increasing the reward fund of $2,500 for information that would help catch the killer of Vigil Starks. Vigil's reward would later be combined with other rewards, equaling a sum of 10000 Over a month later, June 10th, Vigil's father would add another $500 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of his son's killer. By November 1948, authorities no longer considered the Starks murder connected to the other double murders. So, the killer faded into the shadows and never struck again. He just vanished into fucking thin air. He was like, all right, I'm gonna head out. So let's get into these suspects. So there was a lot of speculation of who the phantom killer was, as there were many theories on the identity of the killer. Now, if you remember, Jimmy and Mary Jane described their attacker as being six feet tall, with Jimmy saying that he was a light-skinned man under 30 years old, while Mary Jane said that he was a dark-tanned African-American. 
with this case being so high profile, came a lot of individuals that falsely confessed being the killer. One of those was 18-year-old H.B. Duty Tennyson. I'm just gonna call him Duty because I just fucking love that name. Howdy Duty. If you know, you know. Howdy Duty who committed suicide in November of 1948. Duty would leave a suicide note confessing to all the murders. The suicide note read, To whom it may concern, this is my last word to you fine people, and you are fine. I want to thank you all for the trouble that you have gone to, to send to college and to bring me up. You have really been wonderful. My thanks to Ella Lee, Miss McGee, the owner of the house he was rooming in, for letting me stay with her during my college career and to Belva Joe, Miss McGee's 12-year-old daughter, for putting up with me the way she did. She had to. I know. But I fell in love with her about a week ago. If she was older, I would have asked her to marry me, but that would be impossible. Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Joe Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Miss Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when mother was either out or asleep and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. When I am found, which has already been done, please give this typewriter to Craig, Duty's older brother, and tell him that I hope his child is a boy. It will help him in his work. Everything can go everywhere you think it will do best, except for the Viewmaster, which will go to Belva Joe. Please take my bankroll and give it to Daddy. I think it should go to him, and tell him I don't want the car now. Obviously not, motherfucker, you're dead. Well, goodbye, everybody. I've got to go, gotta leave you all behind and speak the truth. Mama, see you sometime. If I make the grade, which will be hard for me to make. H.B. Tennyson. Did not add the duty. So H.B. Duty Tennyson. James Freeman, Duty's friend, told police that on the night of Vigil Stark's death, they were together at Duty's house playing cards between 7 p.m. to midnight. That night, they both heard the news on Stark's death. And Duty's brother said the confession and suicide were quote-unquote fantastic things induced by reading too many comics. Duty's brothers would later confess, saying Duty wouldn't have access to guns or bullets matching the ones used during the attacks. And Duty didn't even know how to drive a car until the summer of 1947. So Duty, you a phony, you a phony fuck. That definitely weeded out Duty. But the prime suspect, though, was... I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. That that it's just it's just Y O U E L L U L U L. The prime suspect though was U L Swinney, who caught the police's attention after an Arkansas officer was looking at car theft reports in the area and realized that on the night of each murder, a car had been stolen and or abandoned. Weeks after the discovery, a farmer was complaining of his tenant not paying rent. When the farmer gave the officer the name of the tenant and the license plate number, it was no other than UL Swinney. 
Running the license plate number on Swinney's car was discovered that it was a stolen vehicle and was stolen coincidentally the weekend of the Griffin Moore murders. Even Swinney's wife, Peggy, would implicate him as a Texarkana Moonlight murders and describe the murder of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in grave detail. After the confession was made, Peggy would begin to make conflicting statements and change her story. With no physical evidence against Swinney, and with Peggy refusing to testify against her husband, of course, the bitch recanted her statements, so Swinney would never be prosecuted for the murders. Eventually, in 1947, Swinney was sentenced to prison for the repeated stolen vehicles, but released in 1978. God damn, don't you hate that? It's like, you have the statements... She even fucking described the murders that happened in detail. And then after a fucking while, she's like, nope, mm -mm. I'm recanting my statements. I'm not testifying against my husband. Bitch, you fucking said everything and now you gonna take it back. Oh, man. Just keep your word, ho. Shut your bitch ass up if you're not gonna fucking testify then, bitch. Sorry. Going on a rant here. Another suspect was Ralph B. Bauman, who was a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force vet. He told Los Angeles police that he thought he might be the phantom killer. Quote, I've been in a coma running from something, maybe murder. I want to clear it up. If I didn't kill five people in Texarkana, I want to settle down and be a stuntman in Hollywood. I'm happiest when I'm living in danger. Unquote. You're such a weird fuck, Ralph. Before that, he had gone to the LA Examiner and told a reporter, quote, I want to tell you some information. I know who and where the Texarkana killer is. Give me $5. And I had to like rub my eyes because I was like, he's literally telling the reporter to give him $5. Five dollars. I would at least be like, give me a hundred and I will give you all the information you need. Just take a gamble. You know what I mean? Like they'll either say yes or no. Five dollars? Come on, don't say yourself out that short, man. He says, give me five dollars and let me have an hour start and I'll put the information in a sealed envelope, unquote. The reporter probably did not take the five dollars because she or he, whoever it was, called the police after the following statement, quote, on a certain day in March, I was in a Texarkana theater watching a Paith News picture of war when a party of people acted wise and said they were overreacting. It kind of got me. I followed them home. I killed them within a period of three days, unquote. Ralph was arrested at a downtown shooting gallery. He had shot his 23rd bullseye in a row with a .22 caliber rifle and said, quote, I'm my own suspect, unquote. He claimed to have been in a coma for several weeks, waking up May 3rd with his rifle missing, hearing a suspect matching his description. He then hitchhikes to Los Angeles, feeling like he was running from murder. Ralph was discharged from the AAF in 1945 for being psychoneurotic. The police did not charge him or convict him of anything as parts of his story had little basis in fact. Another suspect that was arrested was a black man in his 30s whose tire tracks were found on the other side of the road from Martin's corpse. James Presley would give this man the pseudonym of Sammy. Sammy had denied being in the area where Martin's remains were found, was unable to account for his tire tracks at the scene, and failed his polygraph test. Police were conflicted about Sammy's status of being a suspect, since he had a good reputation and a lack of a criminal record. 
They decided to hypnotize him. Yes, yes, hypnotize. This is a strategy. I didn't know that was used, but it's used, I guess. I don't know if it's still used. That's an interesting topic to talk about. Does anybody know? <clears throat> they hypnotize him and was taken to Travis Elliott, a psychiatrist and hypnotist. Elliot talked to Sammy in private for a while. Sheriff Presley asked Elliot if Sammy could even be hypnotized. Elliot replying, quote, yes, but you have the wrong man. He has no criminal tendencies, unquote. Elliot's technique was simple. It was making Sammy as relaxed and comfortable as possible. He asked Sammy if he killed Betty Jo Booker, to which Sammy replied no, then asked if he knew who did. And Sammy also replied no. On the night of Booker and Martin's murders, Sammy was spending time with a friend dropped the friend off at home, then pulled over to the side of North Park Road to urinate. He then visited his paramour, but after plans did not work out, he went home and to bed. It is said that Sammy failed his polygraph test because of the love affair he was having with a married woman. LOL. Look at that. You sly son of a bitch, Sammy. The aftermath. So, I guess, living in a small town these wild murders happening would definitely freak me the fuck out. As somebody who lived in a small town, when there was a murder, I mean, it would just rattle us all up. The good thing is, is that they would always catch the killer because it was either like boyfriend shot girlfriend or family member shot this member or, you know, something like that to where, all right, well, we know who did it. But I mean, this was... Actually, there was a bunch of, you know, double murders within a four month span. That's a lot. And for the killer not to be found, that's a fucking terrifying. You could have had a whole conversation with this motherfucker. You would know it. Mm, you wouldn't even know it. Kind of like here, you know, in town, when you go to the store, when you go to the mall, when you go out to eat. It's a serial killer among us. You just don't know it. You don't know it. So hide your kids, hide your wife, because they killed everybody up in this hoe. The phantom killer had the whole city of Texarkana on edge. Parents warned and worried their children about being out late. There were city curfews that were set for businesses. Before these murders, it was normal to leave doors and windows unlocked. But now, residents were locking their doors, pulling down shades, blocking windows, and arming themselves with guns. Some residents even nailing sheets over their windows, nailing their windows shut. Panic buying started happening with a shortage of locks, guns, ammunition, window shared, and Venetian blinds. Panic buying. Don't do it. You're just fucking it up for everybody. Especially gas. Don't panic buy gas. Y'all are dumb. Um, streets were deserted at night with citizens extremely jittery and armed with guns. Texarkana at this point became a very dangerous place. When driving up, officers had to turn on their sirens, stand in their headlights, and announce themselves to keep from being shot by a nervous homeowner. In order to go to someone's house, you had to call in advance and let them know to expect you. A fearful tavern proprietor shot a customer in search of beer on foot. Damn, I mean, they, they, hide your kids, hide your wife, because they shooting everybody up in this bitch. It didn't matter who it was. Calling me in advance and letting me know you're going to be here at my house. Yeah, that's like a given. Like, you're, do not, do not come to my house unannounced. Do not. Okay? It's just, no. I only have very few people that can come to my house. And not even people. It's just literally just like one person. But anyways. Other residents even took extreme measures, such as booby traps, installing lights, 
I don't know how installing lights is, you know, extra measures, but it was installing lights was extra. You installed lights, you were fucking extra, okay? Even temporarily moving into hotels or relatives' homes for a safety in numbers. Okay, the booby traps is a, <laughs> is a little too much. Okay, that's extreme. That's kind of cool. I kind of would have liked to see a booby trap. <laughs> Somebody blow up and shit. How the fuck? How the fuck are you able to make a booby trap in your house on your own? How? How do you do that? Asking for a friend. So as news spread throughout other cities, the fear spread as well, including Hope, Lufkin, Magnolia, and Oklahoma City. Residents in other cities began to stock up on guns and axes. After three weeks with no murders, the town's fear began to decrease. The concern lasted throughout the summer and eventually subsided after three months had passed. The Texas Rangers quietly left Texarkana little by little through October. After these wild fucking murders and nobody even remotely being a suspect at this point, everything just kind of went back to normal. It's so crazy, you know, when some shit happens like that. Or even coronavirus is a very good example of, uh, you know, last year this time around, it was wild. It was such a fucking wild time. You know, nothing was open. Panic buying, gloves, mask, hand sanitizer, expensive, out of stock most of the time, and just very fucking wild. And now... A lot of people are vaccinated and everything's seems normal, but not really. I feel like that's kind of what it happened with Texarkana as well. You know, these murders happened and then everybody was like, fuck, we got to stock up on shit. Lock your doors, hide your kids, hide your wife. And then after a while, when these murders stopped happening and of course the Texas Rangers left and, you know, everything just kind of faded off into the distance people were like all right we don't need to hide your kids hide your wife just you know be vigilant vigilantes but yeah so this was a case about the texarkana moonlight murders let me know what you guys think let me know what case you're interested in hearing about next and also be sure to subscribe to Tutan culture on youtube and pop culture radio so you don't miss out on a brand new episode of the Texocity series and i promise to start doing these as frequently as possible especially like i said because october is coming up and my reddit chats are coming through so if you liked the reddit chats definitely look out in october because those are extra episodes a week that i'm going to be coming out but yeah so i will see you guys later bye